Welcome back, friends, to Hope is a Prayer Away. I am your host, Pastor JJ. And before we descend on our Bible study, I would like to remind you that all of my Bible studies are free for you to download and copy. And all of my Bible studies come with no strings attached. There's no registration. There's no email required. No subscription fees. No thumbs up. No like buttons. And you will never have to pay a penny for any of them. For the Lord paid the price for you and I. My only goal is to connect you with Christ Jesus. That's why I did this. Why I'm doing this podcast and the website. The website, should you care to go and and check out some Bible studies are, that we've been able to upload so far, is www.hopeisaprayerawaycom Now, let's get into the Word of God today. And before I begin, let me share with you that this... Uh, this was an extensive study, and I try to hold my podcast and my and my studies to about half an hour, and this is going to be a lot more, so we're going to see how far we get along, but just so that you know that everything is on the website, there's a lot of information on the Book of Kings, and uh, so I, like I said, uh, I don't want to put you to sleep. But there's a lot of info that you can use as a great Bible study and to use as a, as a tool to teach a Sunday school class or, or any class. All right, let's begin, please. Summary of the Book of First Kings. The summary of the Book of First Kings provides information about the title, authors, date of writing, chronology, theme, theology, and an outline of a brief overview of the chapters of the book of 1 Kings. The title, 1 and 2 Kings, like 1 and 2 Samuels and 1 and 2 Chronicles, are actually one literary work, called in Hebrew tradition simply Kings. The division of this work into two books was introduced by the translators of the Septuagint, the pre-Christian Greek translation of the Old Testament, and subsequently followed in the Latin Vulgate, approximately about A.D. 400, and most modern versions. Now, in 1448, the division into two sections also appeared in a Hebrew manuscript and was perpetuated in later printed editions of the Hebrew text. Both the Septuagint and the Latin Vulgate further designated Samuel and Kings in a way that emphasized the relationship of these two works. The Septuagint, 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th book of kingdoms. The Latin Vulgate described them as the 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th Kings. Now together with Samuel and Kings, relate the whole history of the monarchy from the rise under the ministry of Samuel to its fall into the hands of Babylonians. Now, division be, the division between 1st and 2nd Kings has been made at a somewhat arbitrary and yet appropriate place. Shortly after the deaths of Ahab of the northern kingdom, and that can be found in 1st Kings 22 verse 37, 
and Jehoshaphat of the southern kingdom, and that can also be found in the 22nd book and the 50th verse of Kings. Now placing the division at this point causes the account of the reign of Ahaziah, these old names, man, they give you a challenge sometimes, of Israel to overlap the end of 1 Kings. 22nd book, verses 51 through 53, and at the beginning of 2 Kings chapter 1. The same is true of the narration and, the, and, the, and of the ministry of Elijah, which for most part appears in 1 Kings chapter 17 through 19. However, his final act of judgment and of passing of his cloak to Elijah at the moment of his ascension to heaven in a whirlwind are contained in 2 Kings 1, 1, and chapter 2, and 17. Now, the authors, the sources, and the dates. There is little conclusive evidence as to the identity of the author of 1 and 2 Kings. Although Jewish tradition credits Jeremiah, few today accept this as likely. Now, whoever was the author, it was clear that he was familiar with the book of Deuteronomy, as were many of Israel's prophets. It is also clear that he used a variety of sources in compiling his history of the monarchy. Three such sources are named. The book of the, book of the Annals of Solomon, that's Chapter 11, verse 41. The book of the annals of, of the annals of the kings of Israel. That's chap, uh, chapter 14, verse 19. The book of the annals of the kings of Judah. Chapter 14, verse 29. So it is likely that other written sources were also employed, such as those mentions in Chronicle. See the below. So we have more. Although some scholars have concluded that the three sources specifically cited in First and Second Kings are to be viewed as an official court annals from the royal archives in Jerusalem and Samaria, this is by no means certain. It seems at least questionable whether official court annals would have included details of conspiracies such as those referred to in Kings 16.20, 2nd Kings 15.15. It also is questionable whether official court annals would have been rapidly accessible from public scrutiny, as the author clearly, clearly implies in his references to them. Such considerations have led to some scholars to conclude that these sources were probably records of the reigns of the kings of Israel and Judah compiled by the succession of Israel's prophets spanning the kingdom period. First and Second Chronicles makes reference to a number of such writings. For example, the records of Samuel the seer, the records of Nathan the prophet, and the records of Gad the seer that can be found in 1 Chronicles 29.29 The prophecy of Ahijah and Shilonite and the visions of Ido, the seer, 
in 2 Chronicles 9.29. The records of Shemaiah, the prophet, in 2 Chronicles 12.15. The annals of Jehu, the son of Hanani, in 2 Chronicles 20.34. The annotations on the book of Kings, and that's in 2 Chronicles 24.27. The events of Uzziah's reign, recorded by the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos. 2 Chronicles 26.22 See also 2 Chronicles 32.32 And there have been many others. It is most likely, for example, that the ministries, that for the ministries of Elijah and, e and, and Elijah, the author dependent on a prophetic source, perhaps from the 8th century, that had drawn up an account of those two prophets in which they were already compared with Moses and Joshua. Now some scholars place the date of composition of First and Second Kings in the time subsequent to Jehoiakim's release from prison, and that would be approximately 562 B.C., now, 2 Kings 25, verses 27 through 30, and prior to the end of the Babylonian exile in 538. Now, this position is challenged by others on the basis of statements in 1 and 2 Kings that speak of the certain things in the pre-exilic period that are said to have continued in existence to this day. See, for example, 1 Kings 8.8, 8, the poles used to carry the ark, as an example. 1 Kings 9.20-21, conscripted labor. Uh, 1 Kings 12.19, Israel in rebellion against the house of David. 2 Kings 8.22, Edom in rebellion against the kingdom of Judah. So from such statements, it is argued that the writer must have been a person living in Judah in the pre-exilic period rather than in Babylon in the post-exilic times. If this argument is accepted, one must conclude that the original book was composed about the time of the death of Josiah and that the material pertaining to the time subsequent to his reign was added during the exile, according to approximately 550 AD. While this two-edition viewpoint is possible, it rests largely on the this on to this day statements. An alternative is to understand these statements as those of the original source used by the author rather than the statements of the author himself. A comparison of 2 Chronicles 5.9 with 1 Kings 8.8 suggests that this is a legitimate conclusion. Chronicles is clearly a post-exilic writing, yet the wording of the statement concerning the poles used to carry the ark, they are still there today, is the same as in Chronicles as it is in Kings. So probably the chronicler, was simply quoting a source, namely, in 1 Kings 8.8. Now, there is no reason that the author of First and Second Kings could not have done the same thing in quoting from his earlier sources. 
The, this explanation allows for the posting of a single author living in exile and using the source materials at his disposal. Now, what is the theme, the kingship and the covenant as espoused in First and Second Kings? It contains no explicit statement for the purpose or, or theme. The reflection on its content, however, reveals that the author has selected and arranged his material in a manner that provides a sequel to the history found in First and Second Samuel, a history of kingship regulated by covenant. In general, First and Second Kings describes the history of the of the kings of Israel and Judah in light of God's covenants. The guiding thesis of the book is that the welfare of Israel and her kings depend on their submission to and reliance on Israel's covenant God. That their obedience to the Sinaitic covenant regulations and their faithful response to God's prophets. It is, it is clearly not the author's intention to present a social, political, and economical history of Israel's monarchy in according with the principles of modern hist historiography. The author repeatedly refers the reader to other sources for more detailed information about the reigns of the various kings. So, for example, in 1 Kings 11.41, also verse 29, 15, uh, 7, and also verse 31, 16, 5, verse 14, 20, and 27. And he gives covenantal rather than a social or political or economic assessment of their reigns. So from the standpoint of a political historian, Omri would be considered one of the more important rulers in the northern kingdom. For he established a powerful dynasty, and he made Samaria the capital city. According to the Moabite stone, Omri was the ruler who subject, subjugated the Moabites to the northern kingdom. Long after Omri's death, Assyrian rulers referred to Jehu as the son of Omri, either mistakenly or merely, or merely in accordance with their literary conventions when speaking of a latter king of a realm. Yet, in spite of Omri's political importance, his reign is dismissed in six verses. And in chapter 16, verses 23 out of 28 in 1 Kings, it says, with the statement that he did evil in the eyes of the Lord and sinned more than all of those before him, verse 16 and verse 25. Similarly, the reign of Jeroboam II, who presided over the northern kingdom during the time of its great political of its greatest political and economic power, is treated only briefly in 2 Kings 14, verses 23 through 29. It's another example of the writer's covenantal rather than merely political or economic interests can be seen in the description and the reign of Joshua uh, or Josea of Judah. Nothing is said about the early years of his reign, but a detailed description is given 
of the Reformation and the renewal of the covenant that he prompted in his 18th year as king. That is found in 2 Kings 22, verses 3 through 23 and verse 28. Nor is anything said of the, of, of the motives leading to Josiah to oppose Pharaoh of Necho of Egypt at Medigo, or of the or of the major shift in geopolitical power from Assyria to Babylon that was connected with this incident. See the notes on 2 Kings 23 verses 29 through 30. It also becomes apparent then that the kings who received the most attention in 1 and 2 Kings are those during whose reigns there was either notable deviation from or affirmation of the covenant or significant interaction between a king and the god and god's prophet see below for example ahab the son of omri is an example of the former found in 1629 and 2239 his reign is given extensive treatment not so much because of its extra extraordinary political importance, but because of a serious threat to covenant fidelity and continuity that arose in the northern kingdom during his reign. Ultimately, the pagan influence of Ahab's wife Jezebel through Ahab's daughter Athaliah, whether she was Jezebel's daughter is unknown, nearly led to the extermination of the house of David in Judah, found in 2 Kings 11 verses 1 through 3. Manasseh's 2 Kings 21 verses 1 through 18 is an example of a similar sort. Here again, it is, it is the deviation from the covenant that is emphasized in the account of his reign rather than political features such as involvement in the Assyrian-Egyptian conflict mentioned in Assyrian records but not in 2 Kings. The extreme apostasy, apostasy characterizing Manasseh's reign from, made from exile for Judah was inevitable. And that is found in 2 Kings 21 verses 10 through 15 and 2 Kings 23, 26 through 27. Now on the positive side, Hezekiah, 2 Kings 18, 1 through, through 20 and also verse 21. And Josiah, 2 Kings 22.1 and 23.29 are given extensive treatment because of their involvement in covenantal renewal. These are the only two kings given unqualified approval by the writer for their loyalty to the Lord as found in 2 Kings 18.3 and 22.2. It is also noteworthy that all the kings of the northern kingdoms are said to have done evil in the eyes of the Lord and walked in the ways of Jeroboam, who caused Israel to sin, found in 1626, also verses 31, 2252, and 2 Kings 3, 3, and also 1029. So it was Jeroboam who established the golden calf, worshipped at Bethel, and then shortly after the division of the kingdom, see uh, 1 Kings 12, 
26 through 33, and 13, 1 through 6. While the writer depicts Israel's obedience or disobedience to the Sinai covenant as decisive for her historical destiny, he also recognizes the far-reaching historical significance of the Davidic covenant which promised that David's dynasty would endure forever. This is particularly noticeable in the references to the lamp that the Lord had promised David, see 1136 and a note in 15.4, also 2 Kings 8.19, see also a note in 2 Samuel 21.17. It also appears in more general references to the promise to David in 1 Kings 8.20 verse 25 and its consequences for specific historical developments in Judah's later history, 11.12-13, and also verse 32, 2 Kings 19.34, and also 2 Kings 26. In addition, the writer uses the life and reign of David as a standard by which lives of later kings are measured. See examples, 1 Kings 9.4, 11, uh, Verses 4, verses 6, verses 33 and 38, uh, 1 Kings 14, 8, 1 Kings 15, 3, verse 5 and 11, and also 2 Kings 16, 2, 18, 3 and 22, 22, 2. Now, another prominent figure, feature of the narratives of 1 and 2 Kings is the emphasis on the relationship between prophecy and the fulfillment and the historical developments of the monarchy. So on at least 11 occasions, a prophecy is recorded that is later said to have been fulfilled. So see, for example, 2 Samuel 7.13 and 1 King 8.20, 1 King 11.29 through 39, and 1 King 12.15, 1 Kings 13, and 2 Kings 23, verses 16 through 18. The result of this emphasis is the history of the kingdom is not presented as a chain of chance of occurrences or mere interplay of human actions, but as the unfold of Israel's historical destiny under the guidance of an omniscient and omnipotent God. Israel's covenant Lord, who rules all history in accordance with his sovereign purposes. See 1 Kings 8.56 and 2 Kings 10.10. Now the author also stresses the importance of the prophets, themselves in their role as official emissaries from the court of Israel's covenant Lord. The great king to whom Israel and her king were bound in service through the covenant. The Lord sent a long succession of such prophets to call king and the people back to covenant loyalty. In 2 Kings 17 and 13 you will find that information. For the most part their warnings of exhortations fell on deaf ears. Many of these prophets are mentioned in the narratives of 1 and 2 Kings. See, for example, Ahijah in 11, verses 29 through 40, 1 Kings, 
14 verses 5 through 18, first king, Shemaiah in 12, 22 through 24, Micaiah in 22, 8 through 8, Jonah in 2 Kings 14, 25, Isaiah in 2 Kings 19, 1 through 7, and 20 through 34, Huldah in 2 Kings 22, 14 through 20, but particular attention is given to the ministries of Elijah and Elisha. And that can be found in 1 Kings uh, chapters, uh, se- oh, I'm sorry, 17 through 19, and 2 Kings 1 through 13. The reflection of these, of these features of 1 and 2 Kings suggests that it was written to explain to a people in exile that the reason for their condition of humiliation was their stubborn persistence in breaking the covenant. In bringing the exile upon his people, God, after much patience, imposed the curses of the covenant, which had stood as a warning to them from the beginning. As we see in Leviticus 26, verses 27 through, through 45, Deuteronomy 28, verse 64 through 68. And this is made explicit with the respect to the captivity of the northern kingdom in 2 Kings 17, verses 7 through 23, 2 Kings 18, verses 9 through 12, and with respect to the southern kingdom in 2 Kings 21, verses 12 through 15. Now, the Reformation under Josiah in the southern kingdom is viewed as too little and too late. See 2 Kings 23, 26 through 27 and 2 Kings 24 through, through 3. So the book then provides a retro, re, retrospective analysis of, his, of Israel's history. It explains the reasons for both the destruction of Samaria and Jerusalem and their respective kingdoms for the better, for the bitter experience of being forced into exile. This does not mean, however, that there is no hope for the future, as it is with us. And the writer consistently keeps the promise to David in view as a basis on which Israel in exile may look forward, may look to the future with hope rather than with despair. In this connection, the, the final four verses of the book reporting Jehokiah's release from prison in Babylon and his elevation to a place of honor in the court there, and that's found in 2 Kings 25, verses 27 through 30, take on added significance. The future remains open for a new work of the Lord and the faithfulness to his promise to the house of David. It is important to note that although the author was undoubtedly a Judahite exile, and although the northern kingdom had been dispersed for well over a century, and they have at the time of this writing, the scope of his concern was all Israel, the whole covenant people. Neither does he nor the prophets, as found in Isaiah 10, 20 through 21, Isaiah 11, 11 through 13, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 48, verses 1 through 29, Hosea 11, 8 through 11, Amos 9, 
11 through 15, Zechariah 9, 10 through 13, are viewed, viewed the division of the Israelite kingdom as a divine rejection of ten tribes, nor did they see the earlier exile of the northern kingdom as a final exclusion of the northern tribes from Israel's future. As a matter of fact, many from the north had fled south during the Assyrian invasions so that a significant remnant of the northern tribes lived on and in the kingdom of Judah and shared in its continuing history. The chronology of, the, of these books. First and second kings present the reader with abundant chronological data. Not only is the length of the reign of each king given, but during the period of the divided kingdom, the beginning of the reign of each king is synchronized with the regnal year of the ruling king in the opposite kingdom. Often additional data such as the age of the ruler at the time of his accession are also provided. By integrating biblical data with those derived from Assyrian chronological records, the year 853 BC can be fixed as the year of Ahab's death and 841 BC as the year Jehu began to reign. These years in which Ahab and Jehu had contacts with Shalmaneser III of Assyria can also be given definite definite dates by means of astronomical calculations based on an Assyrian reference to the solar eclipse. So with these fixed points, it is then possible to work both towards both forward and backwards in the lines of kings of Israel and Judah to give dates for each king. By the same means, it can be determined that the division of the kingdom occurred in 930, that Samaria fell to the Assyrians in 722 through 721, and that Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians in 586. The synchronistic data correlating the reign of the kings of Israel and Judah presents some knotty problems which have long been considered nearly insoluble. In more recent times, most of these problems have been resolved in a satisfactory way through recognizing such possibilities as overlapping reigns, co-regencies of sons with their fathers, differences in time of the year in which the reign of a king officially began, and differences in the way a king's first year was reckoned. For example, 1 Kings 15.33, 2 Kings 8.25, and also there's a chart that I've provided that I can't be able to share with you unless you go to the website. Uh, what was the content of these, of these narratives? So 1 and 2 Kings narratives of the history of Israel during the period of the monarchy from the closing days of David's rule until the time of the Babylonian exile. After an extensive account of Solomon's reign, the narrative relates to the division of the kingdom and then presents an interrelated account of developments within the two kingdoms. In this account, special attention is given to the ministries of Elijah and Elisha 
in the northern kingdom, with almost a third of the book nearly equal to the amount of narrative given to Solomon's reign. Devoted to God's efforts through his prophets to turn that kingdom away from its apostasies back to covenant faithfulness. See 1 Kings 12.25 and also 2 Kings 17.41. Kingship in the northern kingdom was plagued with instability and violence. Twenty rulers represented nine different dynasties during the approximately 210 years from the division of the kingdom in 930 B.C., to the fall of Samaria in 722 to 721. In the southern kingdom, there were also 20 rulers, but these were all descendants of David, except Athaliah, who, uh, whose usurping, usurping of the throne interrupted the sequence for a few years and spanned a period of about 340 years from the, from the division of the kingdom until the fall of Jerusalem in 586. The outline. First and second king can, can be broadly outlined by relating its contents to the major historical periods it describes and to the ministries of Elijah and Elisha. The Sol Solomonic era. We can find that in first, uh, first Kings 1.1. And 12 through 24. Solomon's succession to the throne. First uh, King 1 1 and first King 2 12. Solomon's throne is established in second first uh, Kings uh, 2 verses 13 through 46. Solomon's wisdom is found in chapter 3. Solomon's reign is characterized in chapter 4. And Solomon's building projects are found in uh, 2 Kings 5, 1, and also 9, 9. And friends, like I said, there's uh, many, many more uh, that, it, that, that I have been able to, to, to find and to write about on this topic. But um, if you go to the website, you are more than welcome. And you're going to see all the graphs with all the breakdowns that we've been covering and uh, and a lot more. And I don't know, friends. Uh, I don't know if you have ever accepted Christ. And I don't know if this is all new to you. But if it is, amen. And if you have just accepted Christ, keep growing. Keep searching. Ask him to open your understanding. To help you remember his words. And let me give you a piece of advice that I give my, my students. I apply the scriptures first to myself and then to others. And friend, if you're listening to this podcast and you have never accepted Jesus, I want you to picture this in your mind, please. You know how you extend your hand out to shake? and greet someone and the person just may walk by and never say a word to you you feel pretty bad don't you I know I would and friends it's the same thing with our Lord 
for how many days, months, and years has he, has he been extending his hand out to you and you've just walked away? But that's okay. He's not a, a God that holds grudges. He's a God that wants to come into your life. He wants to forgive all of your sins. And he wants to partake in your life. He doesn't care about your past. Whatever you've done. If you come to him with, with a true heart. And you ask for forgiveness. Friends. You're going to find forgiveness. If you've been told by a church in the past. That you were going to hell because of this or because of that. I've got good news, my friends. There is not a pastor on the face of this world, starting with me, that has the power of sending anybody anywhere. I can't even send myself to heaven or to hell. He, a, he that holds the keys is the Lord Jesus Christ. And another thing, friends, if you've ever been told that you have to make a donation or or make a special gift to the church because you were saved? No, my friends. Jesus paid the price. Salvation is a gift from God. It costs nothing. Not one penny. And friend, if you would like to accept Christ today, I'm going to say a prayer. And all you have to do is just say it with me as I pray. Heavenly Father, I come before your throne. I ask you to please forgive me of all of my sins. This day, my Lord, I ask you to come into my life, to be my Lord and my Savior. I believe, my Lord, that you died on the cross on Calvary to forgive all of my sins, and that you rose on the third day and that you are God. I ask you, Jesus, to please come into my heart. Please walk with me. Guide me. Protect me. And let me spend all of my days and eternity in heaven with you, with the Father and the Holy Spirit. From this day forward, my Lord, thank you, Jesus. And friend, if you said that prayer, I do believe you were born again. I encourage you to find a good Bible preaching and teaching church. Keep growing in Christ. Get into your Bibles. Find a Bible that's easy for you to understand. There's an easy, uh, easy read Bible. There's no shame. It doesn't matter. As long as you understand what you're reading and ask the Lord to give you the insight, the wisdom as to what he was meaning. And, you know, I see people at bookstores, which is great. I mean, they, they are buying uh, numerous books and the interpretation of friends. The Bible is a dictionary unto itself. And nobody starting with me, can write a better book to help you understand the Bible than the Lord Jesus.
That is the ultimate book. Engross yourself in it. Keep searching and clawing and asking God to lead you and to show you. Attend your Bible studies and keep growing in God. And I hope you win many, many souls for his kingdom. I always close all of my podcasts. And I remember the late pastor, John H. Osteen. And he would always close out his TV programs or sermons with the best phrase I've ever heard. So, Pastor Osteen, sir, in memory to you. And he would say, keep Jesus first place in your life. And he will take you places that you've never dreamed of. Amen. Friends, thank you for your time. And the privilege of being able to share Christ with you. And I will look forward to talking with you tomorrow on our podcast. May his blessings and protections be upon you this day and always. In Jesus' name, thank you.